Hello and welcome to South Beach Sessions. I'm Dan Lebitard. If you've been listening to us for 15 years or so, you were listening live on air as we came to terms with the idea that the internet was taking over, taking journalism over, and it started with Deadspin, doing journalism a little bit differently than it had been done, taking away some of the shine from newspaper reporters in a way that was interesting. And so we decided, as we've seen, that Deadspin has basically been gutted in spirit and gutted in spirit in a way that is impossible to miss when you look at the people who left Deadspin because they weren't down with the idea of corporate management coming over and taking the Deadspin name and turning it into something that was more corporate than the initial idea. We had Drew McGarry and Tommy Craggs, two of the really strong original voices on Deadspin, together on a conversation that we wanted to have about just that time in journalism at Deadspin and everything that's happened at Deadspin since then. They're very smart people. Drew, I love when he writes angry. Tommy, I love when he writes at all. Here is that conversation reminiscing about a different time and a different Deadspin. So, Tommy, what would you say was the best time at Deadspin, the time that you were having the most fun, the time that you got the electricity of like, oh, we're doing some pioneering stuff around here? Well, I guess I would say it was, you know, probably the period between the Brett Favre post when A.J. Delario was still the editor of Deadspin and uh, maybe around the time of the Manti Teo post, which were like, I think in in my mind, they're like kind of neat. Um, I don't want to say bookends, but I think that was when the site kind of grew explosively and in, um, I think, a lot of really interesting ways. And those two stories, I think, represent well represent the things Deadspin did really well and said a lot about, even beyond the stories themselves, the Manti Teo story said something about sports media that I think... Deadspin was sort of built to say in a lot of different ways. Drew, how did you guys know that you were occupying a space there, like between journalism, doing journalism, testing the boundaries of journalism, doing some the, some dirty stuff? Because the Brett Favre stuff was a place that previous journalistic entities wouldn't dare to go. It uh, it was just too dirty. It was too dangerous. And you guys love taking a bat to some of the myths. Yeah, well, you got to remember that before I wrote for Deadspin, I read Deadspin. Like, I read about Deadspin in Sports Illustrated in, like, 2005 or 2006. There was a picture of Leach, like, hunched over a laptop. Like, this is back in the days where, like, like bloggers were, like, this strange, mysterious entity. And they, you'd show, they'd show them, like, in a silhouette, like they were testifying against a child molester or some shit. And, uh, and, I, and I was like, oh, this site sounds interesting. And then I, I got there and I started reading it. And I read something from the Mighty NJD about how shitty Paul McGuire was as a color commentator. And I'm like, these are my people. I've like, I've been waiting my whole life to stumble on a site like this. This is all I ever wanted to hear because all I did was bitch about Paul McGuire because he sucked. So I was very, I was very, very excited. It's an important freedom for you to have journalistically to think that (laughs) Paul McGuire sucked and be able to shout it from the mountaintop. Like, like MJD did a great, like, written impression. He was like, you talk about tough team. This team is tough. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you guys, you guys, you guys, what you did to the media, though, people weren't doing that. You were giving a voice to the fans, mocking the media. Like, that was such a sweet spot for you guys, Tommy. Like, you guys did 
uh, some real cutting of ESPN of anything that felt like mainstream media. Yeah, I mean, I I don't want to put it in like this will sound like sort of pretentious, but I guess there's the fundamental conceit of of Deadspin was this kind of like arbitrage play. Like there is a way that the sports media establishment sports media talked about sports, and it did not resemble how like you or I at a you know at a bar or whatever would talk about sports, and so there was this like vast terrain between you know, those two things that Deadspin could occupy. And a lot of that, you know, did entail like talking shit about sports media, talking shit about announcers. I mean, just how much of the sports experience is being, you know, annoyed as hell at the people talking on TV. (laughs) I love, yeah, it still is. It's the drew. I love though. What I loved is, uh, in retrospect, not as it was happening is that I absolutely feared you guys because you guys were checks and balancing on sports media members who were used to putting everyone else under the microscope. So I found myself scared of your hostility, of the poison, of how it is that you specifically drew, because when you write angry, holy shit, is it angry. Um, I, I just found myself sort of scared at this encroaching entity that was that didn't have the same rules I had to abide by. Well, you should have been scared because I'm a very formidable mind and doing battle with me, Levitar. As you know, you are one of the first deadcast guests. I had you on specifically so I could complain to you about something you wrote about Ray Lewis like 15 years ago. (laughs) Yes, you hated a first person account with Ray Lewis that I was just basically a ghostwriter for triggering everything the Players' Tribune would then do later because they they just wanted to give the athlete a voice directly to the people without the writer getting in the way. But I was stuck in the middle of journalism. So you blamed me for Ray Lewis, in your mind, getting away with murder. I did, because Ray Lewis sucks. So I I had to to take it as well. But I I do, uh, you know, I think it's one of those things where I don't think Deadspin necessarily pioneered the form or anything like that. It happened to be, though a sort of prominent place where like minds got together and had a lot of similar feelings about how sports were presented to the world. presented in a very, uh, you know, sort of uh, calculated narrative fashion that like Tommy said, didn't really align with how fans felt about it. And I think when Simmons started and he got big at the turn of the century, that was a big thing that he, you know, you know, it was standard sort of, you know, to say voice of the fan, sort of underplays it because he was someone at ESPN talking about watching ESPN in ways that it didn't seem like ESPN people were really allowed or or were not particularly compelled to write about in the past. And I think that's actually still true. I think ESPN and other places, they cultivate people who really don't want to talk about how the sausage is made. And that's true, particularly now during the pandemic. You see it all over the NFL coverage everywhere. But the NFL just just blindly not giving, clearly not giving a shit about the pandemic and whether or not players die. And, you know, chirpy, you know, idiots like Schefter and Tom Pelissero at NFL Network just being like, well, 30,000 tests were conducted and only three people died this week. Game on! You know, so like that kind of shit is still out there that, you know, this incredibly carefully constructed and expensive uh, facade that's built up to protect these leagues at the, at the behest of the people who own it and the people who run it. 
And it's still out there today. And the balloon always needs to be punctured. Like every time we puncture it, it just blows back up. Tommy, for those who don't know, like, can you explain, because I thought that you did some artful stuff. And for those who don't know, you're an exceptional writer, although you didn't do it all that often. Um, Your relationship with ESPN was what? Because they tried to hire you at one point, correct? I don't think our audience probably knows it's so long ago. These stories, we've gotten so old, these stories that are seminal landmarks in Deadspin's life are new to much of my younger audience. So do you want to take people through sort of the combative uh, relationship that you specifically had with ESPN and how you almost took a job at ESPN, but then didn't take a job at ESPN in a spectacularly ornate artistic fashion that probably wasn't great for your career. <laughs> yeah. I mean, when I started at Deadspin, I had, I was actually a fact checker at ESPN, the magazine. I've been there for a couple of years just as a freelancer, started at Deadspin. I don't think my time at ESPN gave me like any sort of special loathing of, of the place, uh, you know, beyond just what I felt as like somebody who consumed lots of ESPN. But while I was there, you know, we we obviously wrote a lot of criticism of ESPN. ESPN was our Death Star. Um, and I think that's like actually a really important thing about why Deadspin evolved in the way it did. We had a very clear monster in mind. And we were, even when we weren't writing about ESPN in a way we were sort of seeing ourselves in the negative space, what limited negative space ESPN left for for everyone else. So we wrote a lot of like sharp things about ESPN, about Simmons, about, you know, about everyone. And then Simmons started, uh, started Grantland and wound up, you know, I don't remember the exact timeline, but he was hiring, he hired like Katie Baker, who was a Deadspin, who sort of extended Deadspin family and had written some great things for us. She was one of his first hires and like it was clear, you know, Grantland was going to be a real thing, like, you know, a great thing and incorporate a lot of the things we were trying to do somewhere. I don't know. I, I don't know how long it was after the launch. Grantland came to me to talk about coming on in some role. Uh, we never we never like quite nailed down what the role would be around the same time. I guess this is like not in the canonical history, but I was also talking to the ESPN, the magazine very casually about maybe contributing. And I had a number of conversations with Grantland, met Bill Simmons. I, I met him uh, at a bar near the old Gawker office in, um, you know, on Elizabeth street in New York. And I remember he spent the first 10 minutes on a soliloquy about who the, the hottest woman to have come out of Boston was. And I think it was between uh, Maria Menounos and um, I, I can't remember the other. I think I think I think ultimately he landed on Maria Menounos after about ten minutes. So we we weren't exactly like obviously I have very different sensibilities from him. I, I will say in in his favor he has like what I, I admire in a lot of editors, which is a taste for writers who write nothing like he writes or he thinks and and has a very like Catholic. Um, taste in writing or at least did yeah i don't think that's true anymore yeah there aren't a lot of editors who understand what's so great about wesley morris at the same time they understand what's so great about charlie pierce who understand what's so great about brian phillips and that like i think he's an idiot and a union buster and uh an evil an evil man but he did have once upon a time some really great like sort of publishing editing instincts anyway they offered me a job i said yes it wasn't i hadn't signed anything AJ Delario was the editor of Deadspin at the time, and he 
he like obviously wanted me to stay. He also understood why this was a great opportunity too. So really the, the, the more like self-destructive thing I did in here was to write a post about a guy you, you maybe know, Dan, uh, uh, Lynn Hoppus, yeah. who was the page two editor at the time. And it was just like a throw, it was a throwaway post. I started writing it, not even thinking this might cause problems. The whole like Grantland thing in my head kind of existed apart from, the, you know, the ESPN empire. And I, I wrote this post sort of making fun of him for, he's like, it's a video of him showing off figurines and like, you're, you're making fun. You're making fun for the audience who doesn't know. You're making fun of an ESPN dot uh, com editor. Yeah, uh, who was who was just like kind of a, a moron who was like occasionally like drifted onto our radar. And yeah, I, I knew people who'd worked with him before and didn't like him, so he was already on my radar. Anyway, it was a throwaway post, just a few jokes, and I guess it caused all sorts of problems within ESPN. It looked like. I think it was taken, and actually, this is something you might be able to speak to. I think it was taken as like Simmons fire using me to fire a shot at the rest of the ESPN empire. And I realized in like listening to people talk about this that like that place is such a fucking rat's nest, uh, and just the assumption that everybody is trying to climb over everyone else, and that everything is like you know willful and careeristic, and like this couldn't have just been me wanting to be an asshole to this one guy at like three o'clock in some afternoon, this had to be like tactical Simmons doing something underhanded, some like inside knife work. And so that put everything on hold. And I, I was still up for the job. This was starting to give me pause. Simmons reaction was like, I remember it, you know, he felt like I had made, I had committed some grievous error. And then I had to have a meeting with John Walsh, who I, I don't remember his title at the time. He was the, the, inventor, the inventor of SportsCenter and one of the most beloved figures at ESPN. Yeah, and he was Grantland's rabbi. I, I guess the meeting ostensibly was for, you know, for us to meet and get to know each other and, and for him to see that I wasn't some monster. I think really it was, it was for me, he wanted me to apologize, kiss the ring. So I met with him and Dan Fearman, who is the editor of Grantland. During the meeting, unbeknownst to me, AJ Delario sent somebody dressed in a pink gorilla costume over to our table at some hotel on Central Park South or whatever to sing the Sports Center theme song. Uh, just come over to our table, sing the Sports Center theme song, and leave. And to ruin the meeting, all right? To to sort of ruin the meeting, or did ruin the meeting, or to embarrass what. The point was just AJ, the, the who was running Deadspin, was just being goofy. Yeah, all of the above. Yeah, you're you're thinking too hard, Dan. <laughs> yeah, it's all wait, of the, all, all wait, of the, That's the ESPN brain right there. Like this was just AJ having like having a goof. First instinct was to send Maria Menuos to the meeting. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and so I remember, like, obviously that kind of <laughs> that's that strained things, and Walsh was sort of taken aback. But there was, you know, things were also like blowing up. I, rem I remember Walsh telling me at one point that he had seen uh, Colin Coward in the ESPN cafeteria and he told him that like they were, Grantland was thinking about hiring me and was that okay because I had written critically of Colin Coward in the past. And I remember thinking that this was really weird. I'm not like puffing myself up here, but I feel like the more important thing, given like what I was critici criticizing Coward for is asking me whether it was cool to work with a racist like Colin Coward, not whether Colin Coward was cool working with somebody like me. And so that felt weird. 
And then, yeah, the gorilla happened. And that basically, I was like, I, I walked away from that thinking like, I want to work for the guy who sends the gorilla, not for the guy who thinks I need a green light from Colin Coward to work there. <laughs> uh, and Drew, I said you were the angry one. Like, and not that you come off as angry there, Tommy, because you don't, but you just slaughtered in five minutes there a whole bunch of sacred uh, cows. Like, uh, you just you took a knife to everybody, and Drew's the angry one. Did you believe, Drew, that uh, did you believe that ESPN was the clear monster? Can you articulate sort of what it is that you were experiencing as you saw sports media polished coverage? Yeah, no, I I remember. And and Craig and I talked about this, and we talked about it before um, Craig came aboard. Like when when Will's founded the place, and when and when AJ took over, it was always sort of ESPN was the was the foil. When we started, when Leach started the the blog uh, way back in two thousand five, it was essentially it was a blog. It was you know we were we were doing some aggregation, we were um, you know writing about things that had happened. You know it was AJ. I think that when he came aboard, who really wanted there to be, he didn't say this, but essentially the the ethos was that we need to be the site that's referenced instead of the thing doing the referencing. Like that's how you, that's how you get a bigger, more lasting audience. And, and he followed through on that. Um, but to that end, you know, when we were going to do that, it was, it was always under the impression that we would do it better than ESPN would do it um, because we wouldn't be, beholden is such a shitty word to use because I think the big lead used that in their old shitty motto but you know I I always took the uh, the motto of the site without access favor or discretion very very much as gospel that you know because I'd seen and I know now you know because I've had a long enough career to know how just knowing people and, and having access to them can only naturally distort how you're good your ability to view them objectively. And, you know, that's an important thing in terms of beat writing, seeing people day to day. And I know that, Dan, you're from a traditional sports writing background where it has to be that you have to face every day the people that you criticize. That's the way that it has well, to be. Well, I was envious of the way that you guys could write because there was a distance in it. Uh, there also was a, a cruelty because you were you had a lot of young people, some young people who had to do some learning. Uh, I'm sure right now if I go to you guys and say, hey, the things you were writing 15 or 20 years ago, uh, is there an empathy lacking here? Like you're young, you're smart, you're rebellious. I wasn't that young. <laughs> but there was some of that there, right? Like that, some of that was in play. No. Yeah. Well, I think a lot of it was that there were bad cultural heirlooms from then that, that you know I certainly bought into, like describing things as gay when you mean lame. You know, back you know back when that was sort of part of the vernacular of, of stupid people, and I was among them doing that. Uh, so yeah, there was that. Um, but I didn't feel like. Like, to me, it's not the same as the way Barstool operates now. Like, Barstool went full Nazi, and that's that. Like, I don't think that Deadspin ever started from that bad of a spot. There's definitely, I look back, and I've written about it. I look back, and I'm like, well, I could have I could have done that better. And I could have I could have had more of a brain when I when I wrote that. I don't think when I, when I started Deadspin, and I, don't, I certainly don't think when Leach started Deadspin, the whole aim was to just be fuckers all the time. Like, you know, there, there, there was always going to be 
some sort of moral center to the. To well, the but side. I thought, see, this is this is what I would ask you though, because to that degree, I always thought that Tommy had sort of the most impeccable of journalistic sensibilities, and this is not to rip on AJ anyway, but some of the ways that he did things made me uncomfortable, and I know that's part of the point, but made me uncomfortable because it didn't feel like it had enough of a human standard. It was a little too dirty, fell on the wrong side of the line. Uh, but that's me saying it as someone with more mainstream sensibilities. I don't know what you guys think as someone who were working with him intimately and may not have seen him as a bit of a hot mess. Yeah, no, I don't, I don't agree with that. Like, I mean, I think you say it yourself where it was, a you know, a bit sort of scuzzy from sort of a mainstream perspective, but within it, there's one exception to this, uh, which was the far story but that has its own coda too, because AJ and Jen Sturger are now friends against all odds. You have, to, and I think Tommy knows the story better than I. But somehow they they reconciled after that. Well, happened. but tell people for those who don't know again, because Tommy mentioned this as sort of the seismic shaking that made Deadspin a viral thing. Uh, it it helped because it was just it had it was salacious, and so explain the details on that, Tommy, for those who don't know the ones you remember because you were in the middle of all that. Well, so in broad strokes, I would take issue with the idea that this this story was fundamentally scuzzy because at, at bottom it was it was a story about sexual harassment in in ways that are like totally legible post Me Too. I think if we want to get into this, I think like where kind of the like male supremacy of the site. Uh, affected that story is in the way we like walked a mile out of our way to avoid calling it a sexual harassment story because we wanted to play up we wanted to play up the unseemliness of it um for like carnival barking reasons but also because it felt i think like there was this idea that talking earnestly about sexual harassment just wasn't a thing we did and for those like, for those who don't know forgive me for a second just it's a dick pic Okay, Brett yep. Favre. It's the Brett Favre. I got to say this just to get people caught up. It is the Brett Favre dick pic sent it to a woman who was uh, was it uh, was she a Jets reporter at the time? Sideline yeah, reporter for the team. Yeah, it's Jen Sturger. Yeah, yeah. So the other part of it is that there were t there were two stories actually. In the first story, we didn't actually have the the pic. It was a story based on something Jen had told AJ off the record. She was going to the Super Bowl, and I think. I think AJ sort of joked with her about getting a dick pic from an ESPN, put a bounty on ESPN personality dick pics, jokingly. And Jen <laughs> said, oh, you wouldn't believe what I've seen. And that's how the far stuff came out. And AJ, this was told to him off the record. He was trying to coax her on the record for months. And like, understandably, she didn't, she didn't want to do it. And finally, for various reasons, he, he just, he, said fuck it and just ran through the but th wall but that's the part that i found like that's the part i'm right. objecting to i'm not actually objecting to the dick pic part of it i'm objecting to the that right there yeah i have gone around and around on it in my in my head over the years like I, I do think in the end it was a story about a serial sexual harasser and led to you know i think follow-up stories that bear some more follow-up i think aj would be the first person to say he he did jen dirty there what are you wrestling with that it was ultimately that ends up being worth it, right? As journalism, as art, whatever the journalistic breach is, you're saying the the greater good of what comes from that story is what journalism is supposed to be? Because you seem to be wrestling. You seem to be yeah, wrestling I mean, the bear a little bit. That's that's part of it. I think, you know, my my thing all along was that I think we could have gotten it clean. I, th I don't I don't think we had to screw her over the way the way we did in the past. I was probably more blasé than I should have been about like the damage it did to her. I'm like 
very conscious of that. Yeah, if I could change anything, I, I wish we had pressed harder on, on getting it clean. I'll also say that, Dan, that's, I find that example, and I have the same feelings about it Tommy has, and Jen has been on the record about, I think she literally, I think the name of her post was, you know, Deadspin Destroyed My Life. And I have no, I have no beef with her about that. The, the thing about, about AJ's methods is that that is one sort of singular example, but there are, there are other basic things like, like paying for stories that lasted, outlasted his tenure at Deadspin. Like the Greg Hardy photos uh, of, of Nicole Holder uh, getting beaten, those were procured through a payment. Um, we, and <laughs> it was when Marshman was the editor-in-chief. And that sort of methodology of reporting, I think, is, you know, would be, is frowned on by traditional outlets. Like the Times would get all timesy in a bad like, well, mm, we don't do that <laughs> sort of thing. But ultimately... It was it was in service of getting at the truth, and there are places like TMZ that use that use bounties in a bad way. I think there was always the idea that we were doing something when we were paying for stories like that. We were doing it in service of the story and of the reader, and not just to be fuckers like Harvey Levin. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously, and six one since that matters, and. What do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Tommy, what are you proud of about Deadspin? Like, when you think of your proudest things, if you had to articulate, not I'm not talking about stories, I'm just talking about work done or movements made like where where do you get your sources of pride from the work you guys were doing i could go on for way too long about that i think one thing that i think about a lot now having bounced around media is just the idea that we had and this goes for gawker media in general gawker media was the umbrella company that included deadspin it's now dead it was an egalitarian newsroom and i know that there are people who did not have you know the same experience I did and who feel a little differently, but I think by and large, it was an egalitarian newsroom, Deadspin in particular. I think that creates sort of ethos of, of freedom that can be that occasionally like we would handle poorly, but I think like that freedom in itself is like incredibly important to doing the sort of journalism that I like I care about. Um, and it's just, it is not replicable in the present media environment. I mean, you know, Dan, I would love to hear your thoughts on this, but since I was at Gawker Media, since, you know, since my ship blew up there, I have thought a lot about how to replicate that kind of like that spirit and how to get some of that kind of work onto the page. And I think I've, and I've had the fantasy that like, oh, you can hire, you know, if you hire the right personnel, it can happen. And it's not that, I mean, that's, that's part of it. Certainly there were like important, like great, like personalities there who made that work, but it was also just sort of embedded in the structure of the place and in the fact that we could say fuck you to our publisher in fact had many forums for saying <laughs> to the publisher in fact like some of the sites were kind of conceived as ways of as exercises in saying fuck you to the publisher and that just like you know that doesn't exist drew it's fascinating to me and maybe you could speak to the people who don't necessarily know tommy's credentials uh 
But uh, Tommy has had some things blow up in his face, and Tommy is really trying very hard to be on the right moral side of what journalism is supposed to be. Like, he is a great journalist, period. And some journalism has blown up in his face and singed his eyebrows. Yeah, it's happened to me too, man. It's happened to everybody who's worked in the field. And the, we live in an age right now where whenever people fuck up, like that lady who got the the Atlantic thing with the youth sports, it turned out to be all fake. Uh, her name was like Ruth Shout or something like that. She, the second it got exposed by Eric Wimple at the Washington Post, what does she do? She does the Trump thing. She doubles down. She, it's like... Like, oh, yeah, oh, I've been, I'm the wronged one here. That's a reflex that a lot of people have. And so, like, when we fucked up before at Deadspin, like, there was a big fuck up uh, with Corey Gardner. And I don't mean to bring it up, Tommy, but, like, it was incorrect. And you would know better. The post that we did was wrong. And when it turned out to be wrong, Tommy posted an editor's note saying, this was wrong. We got each shit. And that's that. And that's the way you handle it. But it doesn't, you know, it doesn't mean you're not going to fuck up, you know, going forward. But, you know, you you own up to your fuck ups and then try to improve the best you can. You don't double down. But that is like that's sort of the model now that people yeah. are getting at. Tommy, like, I'm sorry. Like, I, I wanted him to speak to what a great journalist you are. And he no. is talking about the fuck ups. And I, that was not my intention. Oh, yeah. No, no. Tommy's a piece of shit. Like, I don't no, know but this is the thing. The, the, I, I do think the fuck ups are really important because I think that like it spoke to uh, like a freedom we had to fuck yeah. up and then move on. Like and, and it, it was incumbent upon us to like own the fuck ups and to eat the shit in the way that media hates eating the shit. Uh, but to do it out in the open and, and like. I, I don't know. I think I think that's like one of the one of the great things and one of one of the sort of un, underappreciated things about Gawker Media is that by and large we ate the shit. Um, yeah, we ate a lot of shit. And what yeah. a great motto. <laughs> <laughs> Gawker Media, we ate the shit. <laughs> we uh, we actually we had that because when we uh, when we started Defector uh, in September, like we we have our own HR department and stuff like that. And we had to create like a, an employee manual of like sort of uh, like a mission statement, like very corporate ease. And one of them was eat shit. One of them had to be like the last one, the last bullet point was eat When you're wrong, eat just shit. eat the shit. It'll make everything much easier. It'll taste terrible, but just eat the shit. You guys because are real leaders and pioneers in terms like philosophers. I would say modern day philosophers just eat the shit. Well, you can see right now, Tommy has a shit-eating grin on his face, so it's all, it all comes <laughs> well, together. Okay, so uh, Tommy, for those who don't know, and please forgive me, we'll move off it very quickly if it's not something you wish to rummage through, but what happened with you at Gawker, for those who do not know? Um, I mean, that's a, uh, yeah, I if it's you don't want to touch story. it, no, if you don't want to touch it, I don't like, I don't, I'm not interested in rummaging around. In, <laughs> okay. All right. Eat the <laughs> shit, Tommy. I changed my mind. Eat the shit. <laughs> the backdrop here is that, uh, at the time we were being sued, Gawker media was being sued by Hulk Hogan with Peter Thiel bankrolling the lawsuit at the time. We did not know Peter Thiel was bankrolling the lawsuit, but that was, that was sort of the backdrop. What happened was we posted story on Gawker about a Condé Nast executive who is trying to hook up with a male prostitute. He, the executive uh, was married, a man. Um, he, the executive is a straight man, uh, or at least was living as a straight man. 
and we had uh, like a whole series of text exchanges, him trying to set up this like remote assignation with um, this prostitute. And we published it and it like went very sideways. And I think, you know, this was another of my, I think of my fuck ups. And I like, I think I fell down on the job of making that story work. I, I disagree with basically everybody that that story was fundamentally unworkable. I think uh, given, given like what, Gawker was from its start, which was essentially, you know, founded to go after Condé Nast in much the same way that Deadspin was founded to go after ESPN. Um, I think that story was was in bounds. I think I could have done a better job. It's, just, it's such a hard story. Like it is. Yep. I, I, it is such you you went at the highest of challenges on that front. Like uh, fucking that story up is almost understandable, given the degree of difficulty on that story. Well, yeah, I, I mean, I don't want to let myself off the hook by saying it was, you know, a tall order. It, it was just like, the thing is, in retrospect, it looks like this major moment, you know, it was this, and then there was the Hogan stuff, and then Teal. Uh, really, this was just like one of, you know, 500 decisions I, I made that week. And like, when it hit my desk, it was not like this is going to be, you know, my career was going to rest on the call I made on this story. Anyway, it went up, went very sideways. The, I was part of a group of managing partners, and which included the head of sales, uh, the CFO, and they voted to take the post down. And, you know, like I said, our, our sort of governing ethos was you eat the shit. Number one, you know, the, the idea that the CFO head of sales would have a say in pulling a post was anathema. In fact, we had just been writing about, Gawker had just been writing about BuzzFeed taking posts down. Uh, apparently to avoid offending advertisers. No, no, no. The, the difficulty and we've this is dangerous what's happening with journalism right now. But the the difficulty in keeping the uh, business away from the content. Right. Like that's uh, that day's almost dying. Or if it's not dead, it's endangered. Like it's the, a, I, the idea. Firewall, yes. It, it, it's damn hard. In these days, especially now, scarier still, as the billionaires are buying the you know the Washington Post as a toy on the side, uh, wow. it it and they don't care about journalism. They don't care about the rules of journalism. Jeff Bezos cares what about the idea that one of his reporters is writing shitty stuff about Amazon as the publisher. Part of the other the other issue here was was just that like was you know we again we're talking about eating the shit and. Uh, my my thing all along was like, well, if we're a company of bomb throwers, when one of our bombs goes astray, we can't start hiding the evidence that like that goes against the whole ethos of the place. And so just nuking the post altogether and pretending it didn't happen, memory holding it ran against everything we, we wanted to be. Um, I believe you were not you were on a plane when this happened, too, weren't you? Uh, I was on a plane when the decision was made to 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 pull the post. So yeah, this like it, it moved way more quickly than I, I was really prepared for. It was a very messy situation that I don't think I handled, uh, you know, uh, impeccably. Um, I still, I think, you know, the, the reasons I felt like I had to, I had to quit stand by them. But uh, you know, there are a lot of things about that post and about its immediate aftermath that I wish I had, I had handled differently. Yeah. So that's the, too long of a version of, of what happened. Well, there's more to it though. And I don't, again, I get into these situations where I'm fine. I'm rummaging around in what, you know, is probably one of the greatest pains of your life. Uh, but then what ends up happening is how do we arrive at Hulk Hogan and Gawker 
uh, and and what ends up happening there, which is Hulk Hogan bankrupts Gawker, correct? Yeah. So I was I wasn't there at that point, and I feel I don't know. I feel a little hesitant to speak about what was going on. I mean, Drew Drew saw it from the inside. I did. Uh, I mean, I was remote. Um, I worked remotely the whole time because I live in Maryland and I always have, or not always have, but but since I started Denspin, uh, and to me, those two events, while they were you know they were both sort of legalistic fiascos, they were not interconnected in my mind. Um, Hogan was going on at the same time, so it was a, it was a it was a lingering headache that made everyone a bit uh, a bit scared is the wrong word, um, but it made everyone mindful of what exactly we were posting because because of because of the situation we were in. But we were told continually that the lawsuit was baseless, which it was, and that we would be all right. We were continually told it'll be fine, it'll be fine, and I was remote, so I really took it. I, I had no choice but to just believe it and just keep working. And I think the New York office treated it the same way, even though they were much, much closer to everybody else who was on the ground while the lawsuit was going on in Florida. And AJ was down there and, and Emma Carmichael, who used to work at Deadspin, had to go down and testify. And uh, and Heather Dietrich, who was the legal head, was down there. And we keep getting these updates that things were, you know, that again, that, you know, it would be all right, it would be all right. And then, uh, and then the verdict came in and I was like, well, that's all right. You know, it, it probably won't be that much or something like that. And then the verdict was $120 million or some shit. And I was like, okay, well, you know, we can still probably sort this out. You know, and meanwhile, people are like really fucking freaking out. And I'm still at a remove. So I can't really, I don't really have a good gauge for how bad this is. And then, and then it turns out we're going bankrupt. And, uh, and I was like, well, shit, like, um, am I going to be out of the job? But then Univision came in. And bought us, so I, you know. So my whole thing was that oh, we can just keep the site going. Everything's good. And then Univision turned out to be a disaster. And then they sold us to Geo Media, who turned out to be the ultimate disaster. It ended up being the end of Deadspin once and for all. So it was, uh, you know, I couldn't have envisioned it at the time as being uh, this sort of, uh, you know, the, the the pinball that sets off the Rude Goldberg machine. But that's what it turned out to be. And Drew, what did you think of Tommy resigning over principle? Tommy harming his career over, not that it's surprising, I would imagine, if you know him at all. You know, Tommy and I never really actually talked about it. I remember I sent him a pissy G-chat that I'm not sure he got because I was working also at GQ at the time, which is owned by Condé Nast. And I, I remember, and I, I, I remember I just said, like, of all the stories you pick to run, that's the one you pick or something like that. Like, I was pissy about it from an incredibly selfish viewpoint. And I was working for Devin Gordon was my editor at the time. And he and Tommy were in loggerheads a lot. And, uh, and so I remember him resigning. I wish he had not because I just wish that we had been able to work it out somehow or that he had been able to work it out with Gawker. It wasn't about he and I having any differences because I was not. Oh, but Tom, but Tommy, at that point, right? Like you're not working anything out, right? This is your conscience. This is your soul. This is all that stuff. Like you're you're making a principled decision that is about a sacrifice that you know is going to hurt, right? I don't want to talk in such high flown ways. I mean, there was also just a, a sort of straightforward practical consideration here: is how can I do my job when uh, when the other managing partners can override any decision? I, th- I think there was also the consideration that like. I think to extract extract myself from this, the only way to do it would have been to fire people who were doing their jobs, who were involved in the story. And I wasn't going to do that. 
I don't think this was an act of heroism or whatever. I think there were just straightforward practical considerations that made my position there untenable. But yeah, also like this, we were trampling what I had had sort of thought was central to our ethos and what I I genuinely loved about that place and what made it a a real alternative to to most of the rest of media. Um, And that included, and I, I keep coming back to this, but the freedom to fuck up. Is Deadspin the most fun you guys have ever had? Has there been another job, another journalism job that you guys have had that's been as fun as that one? Uh, no. First of all, I got to work at GQ for seven years when you know I got to I got to interview celebrities and I got to expense you know three hundred dollar bar tabs and stuff like that. That's like being handed the keys to a fucking Ferrari. It's great. And then the other thing is that obviously when we all quit Deadspin, which was over a year ago, and similar to what happened with Tommy, it was it was. There was a morality to it, but there was also the uh, the collective realization that we would not be able to do the jobs we wanted to do going forward if this continued. So we all had to quit. Um, but out of that, we are actually um, almost a year removed from uh, the funeral of Deadspin, which is the last time I saw Tommy. And before that uh, party, which was at Bergen in Brooklyn, which I think has since gone out of business because of the pandemic, uh, we had an hour-long meeting uh, with Megan Greenwell in a private room at that bar in which we found out we had a, fin- a financier interested in helping us restart a, sub- a website somewhere else. And, uh, and so that was uh, an incredible moment because it's what ultimately led, even though we ended up not using that financier, ended up, ended up leading to the launch of Defector in September. And the launch of Defector has been awesome. Like, and that sounds like plugging. And you know, I'm a company man now. I help own the company, so I got to plug it anyway. But like the fact that we've been able to get the site up and get running and do the way we it's exciting, do it invigorating. It sounds, and you've learned life's lessons and you know what to appreciate. You've lived a little yeah. bit. And, and, we're, and the good thing is we're almost at our target salaries. Like we've almost made enough money to pay ourselves properly. And the, the fact that we were able to do that, it's fucking great. I, I, I love it. So I can't, I, Deadspin was a perfect job in every way. But I think the problem is if I, if I sit here and I, you know, rhapsodize over it too much. I'll end up up my own ass. And I don't like, I don't like looking back as I'm like, as much as I like looking forward. This podcast is an exercise in us stuffing ourselves up our own asses. And yeah, eating shit. Yeah. And yes. And then eating shit. Yeah. That's and right. That's what we're giving people. We're stuck. That's it. We're stuff that oh. head up that ass and eat that shit. And we're going to file it under pseudo intellectualism. Tommy, you answer the question because it was it the most fun you were having. Oh, yeah, easily. It's the one place where I felt like the things that I wanted to say about sports, sports media that I could. um, And in fact, was, you know, not just that I had the ability to, but that the site's ethos aligned with mine and that I had some role in shaping that ethos. I do think and, and since I'm not involved in Defector, I feel like I can be an objective party here. But I, I do think like all are mooning over the, the ethos of Deadspin or whatever, like the ultimate expression of that is defector. And uh, like that is the fruit of, you know, when I'm talking about this like egalitarian atmosphere and all that shit, what they did in leaving, the statement they made in leaving en masse uh, and then creating this site, this co-op, uh, importantly a co-op, I feel all sorts of unearned pride. And I, you know, I feel like- um, It's badass. It's badass. They walked out on jobs. Like there's no, there's no disputing that they walked, they walked out as a group to make a statement. I haven't even covered with Drew, like what those meetings must've been like. How the hell do you get everybody at a place to walk out on their salaries? 
Well, it wasn't so much. It wasn't like a, a conspiracy or anything like that. It was the fact that things were going sideways, to use Tommy's word, like when when Geomedia bought us, like it was sort of death by a thousand cuts. You know, the sort of the popular, um, you know, the sort of accepted story out there about how we quit. It was that a memo was sent out by uh, then executive editor at the time, Paul Maidman, demanding that we stick to sports and we not write non-sports content um, and that we essentially all quit over that. But it was I know the feeling. I know the feeling. Yeah. yeah. That was more emblematic of just how things had been going. And then Barry Pacheski was fired um, in late October of 2019 after he cheekily decorated the site with nothing but non-sports stories. And then Jim Spanfeller, who still runs Geomedia, uh, told him to get the fuck out. And once that happened, because Megan Greenwell had already left like a month or two prior and Losing her, like she didn't want to leave, but she ended up having to essentially because Geomedia had forced her hand. And so we were like, okay, Megan's gone, but we still have Barry. We still have Tom Lay. So the spine of the site is still intact, even though we just lost the brain. And then, and then Barry got fired. And it's like, we all collectively understood over the course of, a, of two or three days that, uh, that we, we didn't want to do this if we couldn't do it together. Um, and that included Barry or freely or freely, right. Or freely. Yeah. Or freely, but also, you know, it was, it was about us being together, like, and saying a company is family is just such incredible horseshit and so awful, particularly when you're talking about Deadspin because we didn't own the stupid place. Um, and so no, but my, my, my show is family. Like they're my family. They are my family though. Like that. I I understand. No, I, yeah. Literally in my father's case. But no, yes. that's exactly how I've always looked at the things that we're, we're doing around here. So when I discovered the site, I was like, wow, there are like people, you know, it was about connecting with those people. And then working with those people was like, you know, just having each other was, was really the highlight of it. More than any story we did, we're getting to meet Colin Kaepernick or, or any of that shit. Like just the, the sort of cultivations of the relationships that we had. And so being able to preserve those has been, has been the, real, the real joy of it. Because that's really all that you're left with professionally like you make the money you do the stories and all that stuff but if you're left with this wealth of of other people uh, you know that you you know you, you feel like you're genuine friends with not only with the people that we work with but the people who read the site like get it it's just like it's just you know we go into the comments now and it's like i like going into the comments on posts that defector i'm like oh it's actually going to be interesting smart people smart people discerning no that's where you learn yeah content editors they help you make the stuff of, because yeah. they're similarly like minded but before i i've got to get out of here because I, we've gone too long by by leaps and bounds i can't talk to you guys enough i want to ask tommy one more question but drew before you get out of here just tell the people where and how they can get Defector and why they should get Defector. Wow, I'm glad you asked, Dan Levitard, because Defector.com is live as we speak. And in fact, uh, if you go to Defector.com slash holiday dash gift, you can buy a gift subscription for your loved ones. It includes a free tote bag. <laughs> okay. Um, now, Tommy, I didn't realize that. Wow, you've gotten good at that very fast. Um, Thank you. Uh, Tommy, were you the, the end of Deadspin? Heartbroken? Uh, unearned pride, as you say? Both? Like the end of it, when you saw what it's become, distorted, lopsided, the principles that had to be broken in order for that to be so... Uh, when you saw that Deadspin would never again look like what it is that you guys built, the feeling was what? Yeah, I mean, it's just it's depressing to look at it now. I, you know, I understand uh, why some people felt they had to take a job there. I understand also, and I think this is really important. Why, you know, 
I do think I would call a number of them scabs. I do think there are also people who took jobs there who did not feel moved or included in the sort of solidarity that the the um, like Deadspin staff showed in walking out. And I think that's actually an important thing to keep in mind about Deadspin's legacy. There's a reason that the site is much blacker than Deadspin was, and just in terms of, of number of black writers and I guess editors too. And I think that was one of my failings as as an editor there is I think I was sort of blase about that, um, thinking like, well, we we have the right attitudes, we write very well and critically about race. You know, this isn't this isn't quite an imperative for us because we're one of the good guys. And I think that's like obviously I think that is a stupid way of thinking about it. But not an uncommon way at the time though. Like it's yeah. not it 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 is a bias that plagues all of sports media because not enough people have looked there. Like it's an understandable mistake. It's it's only one that journalism has been making throughout time. Right. Yeah, but if, if we are if we are gonna be the alternative, then that is one thing we should have been the alternative on. But I I the thing I keep thinking about is like well, there is a sports site that did write very well about the dynamic in which black athletes often got a chance by working as replacement players during strikes, during labor labor stoppages or whatever. There was a site that wrote very well about the dynamic and the like the sort of complicated dynamics within that dynamic. Uh, and that was the old dead spin. I don't really see the new dead spin for, you know, for, uh, you know, the good it's done in terms of hiring. I don't see them quite attacking that in the same way that we did once upon a time. And that's the bummer to me. Drew, you mad about that? Are you mad about the idea of scabs uh, sort of, you know, for lack of a better term, uh, trampling over the principles that made you guys walk out? No, I don't honestly don't give a shit about the side at all. Like it, it, as far as I'm concerned, it doesn't exist. Like it, it didn't exist. We quit. And they went lights out. It went dark for six months until they finally came back online in April when no sports existed, which was hilarious. And like occasionally, like someone will send me, you know, some shitty posts that they did. But it's just it's just like Bleacher Report circa 2007 garbage. It's of no use to me. So I can get worked up over it and, you know, keep looking back and, oh, they've done to my precious and all that. Yeah, but you worked up is pretty good, though, Tommy. Like you could speak to this. Him him worked up. Him worked up, uh, spoke for for de- both of you, actually, because actually both of you, because as as infrequently as Tommy wrote, it's only when he got pissed off, it felt like, that Tommy <laughs> would end up writing. And then somebody would end up with, uh, you know, scissors embedded in their forehead. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I'm just going to let Yeah. Well, you know, I, no, but I, I mean, you two, I always loved because I never tapped into that. I don't know whether I never wrote angry. Um, and I, think, I know, I think it's an emotion that my writing has missed is what I'm saying. Like I, I remember reading you guys. I'm like, holy shit. These guys are so good when they're just righteously pissed off the fuel that that produces the fire that produces in writing. Like it's, it's gotta be the source of the, of all of your best writing. Is it not? Well, can, can I, can I put a question to you, Dan? Sure. I, um, I know we have to go, but I, I guess I, I'm curious because I saw, I mean, I remember reading you, you know, I think you were in the first issue of ESPN, the mag, is that right? And I remember uh, reading one of the early ones. Yeah. It used to be total sports before it became ESPN, the magazine. So if I wasn't in the first issue, I, very early on. Yeah. 
and I, I remember, and I know you've gotten a lot of shit for this over the years that you, you know, you wrote a lot of what was sort of sneeringly referred to as the, you know, athlete is misunderstood. Player apologist of. stories. Yeah. And I think you were, your, your affect in writing those was different from ours on, on Deadspin, but I think you're coming from, coming at this from like sort of a similar point of view that like, there is this like hegemonic way of writing about, about sports and athletes and it's getting something wrong. And this, this is a way, this is a way of sort of chipping away at that. Um, it wasn't full of rage, but I think it was informed by like, you know, the same sort of annoyance that Drew and I felt when we wrote. Well, media I, shit. I, I would say though, not even knowing where you're going to end up with this, it is what the access provided that you guys, uh, you were able to flourish outside of the access but what the access provided was to a viewpoint that I had not heard before. So I was eager to get out for the athletes, whatever it is that they were thinking, because weirdly I couldn't understand why it wasn't something that was being written about or talked about more because you know, the, the media didn't look like them, didn't think like them. So that was, I was just sort of a filter for that uh, stuff. And I ended up getting great fame and great hatred over being a contrarian that way. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I guess it, this was not a question so much as a statement, but that I think there was a lot of sort of proto-deadspin in that idea, expressed differently and expressed in like corporate approved ways, but. Well, that's angry. It wasn't, I, I, maybe I should have been angrier to Drew's point. Like maybe given what we just saw happen in the streets in 2020, um, I should have been righteously pissed off while writing about some of the race stuff. Uh, but I, I was sort of writing about it matter of factly through the prism of people who didn't look like me, think like me or experience America the way that I did. Um, but it's also one of the reasons that I gravitated toward your site, uh, so much because it seems like you weren't, you, you weren't just fans. You were fans who were also sort of pissed off by how we were judging these entertainers. Like you looked at it with a bemusement uh, and didn't think that while you could have written angry, you'd get angry at the angry. Like you'd get angry at the people who were raining down all manner of judgment on the circus clowns at the circus. Well, it has to be earned. You know, there's a lot of money to be made in performative anger online, right? So so it always has to come from a place of, of reality, something that genuinely angers and, and frustrates you. And if it, if it doesn't, then you have to be upfront about, you know, this is why your team sucks and we're just taking the piss out of you. But Otherwise, um, you know, I, I have found not that anger is the, the you know, sort of combining influence of, of the best things I've written, but more just uh, making sure I dig underneath to get at what I'm really, really, really feeling. Um, you know, whether it's my son almost dying at childbirth or, or me almost dying a year ago, two years ago, um, and exploring those with as much raw honesty as I, as I possibly can. Uh, that, I think, is what, what gets people to connect with you. Um, as opposed to just saying, you know, you know, X or Y is, is shitty and annoying. Although I do that all the time. Um, like it has to, the, the reader has to have the, be under the impression. This is, you know, like when they read Hunter, Hunter S. Thompson's obit of Richard Nixon, that there's genuine contempt, uh, <laughs> and earned contempt when they read it. Okay. I'm going to get out of here on that note. My audience is going to relieve, be relieved because they call me the grief eater in these interviews when, and you just threw a couple of bombs at the end of this. 
uh, that I'm just going to skip past and like not going to even talk about them. Oh, your your son almost died and you almost died. Okay, good talking to you guys. Uh, well, remember, remember, my- always eat shit. Always yeah. on behalf of Tommy, on behalf of Drew, who again almost died and his son almost died, but we don't have time to talk about it. Everybody out there, just <laughs> stick your head up your own ass and eat shit. <laughs> Thanks to Drew and Tommy. They were interesting. That was an interesting time as well. Enjoyed exploring and reminiscing with them a little bit about a what already feels like an outdated time in journalism. A reminder, if you're supporting the stuff we're doing around here, Lebetard and Friends Podcast Network, the Dan Lebetard Show with Stu Gatz. We're in our second month here, our second month of flying solo as a pirate ship, trying to get you about the same content we were getting you before when we had all of the Disney infrastructure and didn't quite require your support the way we need your support right now. So if you would check in on the stupidity podcast feed, he's doing fun stuff over there. He's got Dwight Freeney that he's trying. You can watch that thing grow by yourself as Stugatz gets a little too close, extra over laughs around Dwight Freeney as a way to seduce him to work cheap. And so Stugatz can put some sponsors on him. And all of a sudden he's got Dwight Freeney media personality, cheap broadcaster who didn't like the confines of doing broadcast news for the NFL network needed to spread out some and decided to meet Stugatz who is going to cheapen Dwight Freeney's name by selling him at every turn wherever he can. Check out Stupidity with Stugatz and also Mystery Crate. This week, we've got a fun one. Ron McGill, Zoo Miami, Sex and the Animals. That's much different than Sex with the Animals. I think you'd listen to both of them. And I think, I'm not sure, we go deep inside the Ron McGill bedroom, Mystery Crate. Check that out. 